Yoga in Action proudly presents The Lost Ways of Knowing with Circle Yoga Shala's Matthew Kreps. We're beginning with a discussion of some of the most ancient ideas from India that right up until the present day influence what we understand to be yoga and how we practice these things that we call yoga. We feel like it's very important to know something of the origin and the majesty of this ancient culture that has produced these philosophies and this art and this music and all the things that have showered the world with wisdom and ways of understanding ourselves and so on. So if we start far back, as far back as we can, this means we're discussing the Veda, specifically the Rig Veda. I think it's safe to say that for the majority of India, the Veda is considered the orthodox source of knowledge and revelation. The Veda itself is said to be heard. The word is shruti in Sanskrit, and all other texts are said to be smriti, those that are remembered, those that are in some sense secondary to the initial revelation that established the culture and the land that they still call Bharata. So, we want to provide some dates for the composition of these texts and put those dates in the context of world history in a certain sense so that we can get a sense of how old they are and what was going on in other places at the same time and afterwards. If we, if we go as far back as we can, the world timeline is given to us that the Stone Age cultures can be said to exist around 50,000 BCE. We don't see anything in the way of necessarily philosophy and art and so on until we jump forward to 8,000 BCE, which is when we find rock art in Africa. If we go forward a little bit further, around 6500 BCE, agriculture begins, and then around 3100 BCE, King Menes founds Memphis as the capital of Egypt, and Egypt, of course, is so influential. When we come to India, at about 3000 BCE, pastoral nomadic societies emerge, and then around 2,500, urban societies emerge along the Indus Valley. Finally, between 1700 and 1500 BCE, nomads in the Punjab are said to have composed the Rig Veda, the first and most ancient of the fundamental Vedic corpus. For a point of comparison, if the Veda is said to be composed between 1700 and 1500 BCE, Genesis, the first book of the Hebrew Bible, which is really important for Western culture, is thought to have been composed between 1450 and 1400 BCE. In 1240, Moses is said to have received the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. 
Homer's Iliad was written in 762 BCE. In China, between 479 and 551, Confucius lived. In Greece, between 428 and 347 BCE, Plato lived. And then finally, 348 to 322, Aristotle lived. And so to get to the founder in a certain sense of the Western mind, insofar as Aristotle had a role to play in that, and that is a huge role, we can see that the Veda is well over a thousand years older than that. So we're dealing with some unbelievably ancient stuff here and some stuff that is very different than our modern mindset. And part of what we're trying to do in these initial podcasts is to help us distinguish how different we are than the ancient peoples who, whose ideas and philosophies gave us yoga and also in some sense how similar we are, how we're still looking for the same sort of answers, how we're still suffering from the same sort of confusions. So there are three Vedas. They call them the big three. The Rig Veda, the Sama Veda, and the Yajur Veda. And we can say a little bit about how they relate. Though, again, the Rig Veda is the fundamental material of the Vedic revelation. So the Rig is what was heard by the seers who are said to have composed the Veda. They're called rishis, the ones who see. The revelation they received dealt with essentially how is it that we are to be in this place that we find ourselves? Who who are the gods? How was the world made? What's my place here? What's our place here? How do we act given these circumstances? Big existential questions about where we belong and what we're supposed to care about in human life. This fundamental material in the Rig Veda was used to create the other two Vedas, the Sama and the Yajur. So the verses of the Rig were rearranged for chanting or singing as the Sama Veda. And Sama Veda means knowledge of songs. Some additional prose passages were added to comment on the fundamental revelation's use in ritual. So how is it that the Rig Veda gives us the material that tells us what ritual is supposed to be like? And that composes the Yajur Veda. And Yajur means the knowledge of sacrifice. So if we were to sum those three up, we would say the Rig Veda is the initial pot of gold, the initial revelation that was heard by the seers. And then it gets rearranged so that we can sing it. And then it gets elaborated on just subtly so that ritual begins to emerge. There's another Veda called the Atarva Veda. And the Atarva means knowledge of the fire priest. Knowledge of the fire priest is concerned basically with worldly life. Uh, not above and beyond, but in addition to religious ritual in the Yajur. What about the practical stuff of living an average, everyday human life? 
But by the time we get to the Atarva, we see this use beginning to emerge. And that includes things like, how do I take care of basic sickness? What about relations between people? What methods would I use to heal? There can be spells in the Atarva. There's the use of charms, things like that. And also a fairly extensive herbal pharmacopoeia of healing remedies. And the Atarva is important because Ayurveda references the Atarva as the as one of the main sources for its understanding and knowledge. And you see the word Veda is in Ayurveda, and that word Veda means knowledge, and Ayur sort of means life, and so it's knowledge of life. And the Atarva kind of forms a matrix out of which that stuff happens. Well, given that we see that the word Veda means knowledge, we're going to try to drill down into that to get a sense of what the, the vision of the world really was like for these people insofar as we can. So we want to ask, what is Vedic knowledge? In order to, to answer that question, we have to talk about something called Soma, the elixir of immortality, the, the real focus of the Veda. One could make a statement, in essence, that the Veda is about Soma. And as bold a statement as that is, it has truth behind it. Though the Soma is part of the Vedic sacrificial triad. The Soma is a liquid. It is, quote-unquote, pressed from a particular plant, and this plant has not been identified with any certainty up until this point, although there have been many that have tried to do it. Many have tried to associate it with the Amanita muscaria. I think that mushroom is the mushroom that some have speculated about, and that connection is important because the soma is a liquid that when you drink it, it produces ecstatic states, what many of the translators call rapture. So, in addition to rapture, Soma is also called, quote, the vigor of the gods. So this means that the divine ones receive their vigor from this particular liquid, this mysterious elixir. And because humans need to make the sacrifice, they need Soma. And because the gods are also making sacrifices and because they receive their vigor from Soma, everyone's eyes are focused on this particular object. All the actions of everyone can in some way be traceable to this desire or the need that both the gods and humans feel for Soma. And we see ardor or rapture, I said. We see vigor, right, rejuvenation, uh, the sense of being really alive as traceable to this liquid. But there's more. Someone not only induced a particular ecstatic kind of intoxication, it also encouraged truth. So here's a, here's a hymn from the Rig Veda that comments on this notion, the relation between Soma and truth. For the one who knows 
This is easy to recognize. True and false words clash. Of these two, the true, the just, is what Soma protects. And he fights on truth. Unquote. So that's hymn 7.104 of the Rig Veda. So we're close now to having an initial insight about what Vedic knowledge is. It's this double gift. Sometimes I say the one-two punch of rapture or ecstatic experience, but also the true word. Robert Colasso, one of the great translators, one of the main scholars who figures heavily in our study, says that these two things, rapture and knowledge, distinguish Vedic knowledge from modern forms of knowledge. We should know that the divine will notice us if we offer it rapture. Now, because Soma is very complex, because it's the vigor of the divine, because it rejuvenates, because it protects truth and is involved with the true word, and because it is rapturous in its effects, it's extremely powerful. And that means we should have as much awe and respect in approaching it as we can, because it can be very dangerous. Let's say, for instance, if just one of those attributes, vigor or rapture or even truth, were the only thing that came from it or became the only thing that distinguished our knowledge. So in the Veda, there's a story that shows what it means to not respect Soma, to not approach it with awe and respect. The first one to do this is Indra, one of the original gods, a very mischievous, very interesting, very important initial figure in the pantheon of gods that that begin to emerge in the initial revelation. So Robert Colasso recounts this myth of Indra abusing the Soma. Quote, Indra, eager, impatient, headstrong, he snatched the liquid from Tvastar and drank it without ritual, without mixing it, without filtering it. His body fell apart on all sides. The intoxicating liquid came out of every orifice. Then Indra vomited. He no longer knew what to do, so he turned to Prajapati. Indra lay on the ground devastated. The gods gathered around him and said, In truth, he was the best of us. Evil has befallen him. We must heal him. And so here is the, the devastating effect in a beautiful image this fate of a god who, in haste, drank the Soma, quote, without ritual. Now, what does it mean to drink it without ritual? It means to drink it out of the sacrificial context. And that means to drink it without a certain gesture, uh, a certain outer gesture or attitude or posture, and also a certain inner gesture. It means to drink it without mixing it to drink it in its pure, unrefined state. It needs to be worked on a little bit in order to be fit for the sacrifice. And it also means to drink it without filtering it. So all of reality, because of the nature of the mythology we're dealing with here, needs to be filtered subtly to be prepared for the sacrifice. Now, if that's not happening, then, quote, 
Indra's body fell apart on all sides. The liquid leaked out. It began to run everywhere. And then he vomited. So it's too powerful. Rapture in this form would tear us apart. It's not useful for what's going on. And we know this because the gods say, in truth, he was the best of us, but evil has befallen him. And now we need to be healed or he needs to be healed. So in order to heal Indra, the gods perform something called the Sautramani Rite, which heals Indra's illness, but it also heals his crime. From this time onward, all who drank Soma feared its dangers. And there are specific prayers that show this in the Rig Veda about how respectful and how much in awe people are when they begin to approach the sacrifice. Here's a few quotations. Quote, Like the harness of a chariot, thus keep my limbs together. And again, quote, Let these juices protect me from breaking a leg and preserve me from paralysis. So we're hoping that when we receive rapture, that our limbs will stay together unlike Indra's, that will retain our integrity somehow. And we also are basically being asking to be protected from the effects of a certain divine drunkenness. It's interesting here that they know, someone knows that we might break a leg in this ceremony because of the state we're in, or because the rapture is so deep and so powerful that we become paralyzed. So if we're thinking about what it means to approach Soma in a particular way, it begins with a desire, and it begins with a desire for rapture and truth. And then we would approach with something like awe and respect, and we would request that this rapture come to us. But we're requesting in a way where that rapture would be applied perhaps with the precision of a surgeon so that it would go specifically to what is needed to illuminate what is important, to be able to help us rather than blowing us apart or paralyzing us. Now, we've already mentioned that the word Veda means knowledge, we know that that knowledge is rapturous and truthful, and we know that it will be vivifying, it will be life-giving. That's basically knowledge of the sacrifice, knowledge of how the cosmos works, and knowledge about how the sacrifice is to be performed. Now, if we dig deeper into this, we find a structure that's important to understand. So what, what would the structure of the Vedic sacrifice be? Well, there's two primary parts of the structure. One is the higher and one is the lower. We could call the higher the macrocosm, the realm of the divine, and we could call the lower the human realm or the microcosm, the realm of manifest reality. What's interesting is that there's no, in the Vedic context, the strict Vedic context, there's nothing that guarantees that these two will be connected in a certain way. They are mirrors of one another, very much like mirrors that face one another. 
but they need a mediating term in order to have facilitate a flow of information in order for the human to receive information from the divine and in order for the human to send information or nourishment right to the divine and this mediating term is the sacrifice so the vedic sacrificial structure is composed of macrocosm microcosm and a sacrifice in between that great scholars like Mircea Eliade call the mecocosm or the middle realm. David Gordon White says this, The Vedic triad of human sacrifice and divine has come to be applied to a myriad of domains across a wide array of religions, philosophies, and scientific disciplines including those of yoga and alchemy. And so it's very important to understand that this trinary structure that is a dynamic structure goes forward in history and becomes appropriated in different systems, like when we talk about the Upanishad and when we later talk about the Bhagavad Gita and when we later talk about Hatha Yoga and Tantra and alchemy leading up to the present we're going to need to keep in mind this three-part system that is ancient and is the key to understanding the Vedic imaginary. Though this sacrificial triad goes forward in history and goes to different contexts, it, it takes on new meanings, but it also is the case that it, that it retains a certain essence. So what is that essence? David Gordon White again says, Throughout the history of Indian thought, no set of concrete elements has been as pervasive as the sacrificial triad of fluid, fire, and air, or rasa, agni, and vayu. So fluid, fire, and air are another way of seeing the relation between the divine and the human and the sacrificial mediating mechanism in between. The fluid in this case would be the soma, the vivifying, intoxicating, truth-protecting element of the sacrifice. The fire, of course, is that which transforms, and the air, of course, is that which feeds the fire. So this is simple to understand in a certain way, and it's important because remember that the microcosm is a reflection in a way of the macrocosm, and that means this three-part structure is essential to the microcosm. So if you have a fire, the fire needs to eat. It needs to have something that it will burn. It can't, it can't just live on air. And so fires need food. They need food to burn, and they need food to cling to, to keep the flames grounded. But fires also need air. And so if you want to kill a fire... The, the fastest way to do it is to cut off its air. Then it loses the motivation or the motive force that allows it to cling to the food and to continue. This should sound familiar in a certain way, especially if we describe what the fire is doing as eating and breathing, because this makes us look quite a bit like that fire. 
humans have homeostasis, they carry a fire and they carry a hunger that has to be satisfied as long as they're alive. So humans have to eat and will require something like soma. But humans also have to breathe. And like a regular fire, if you cut off the air to a human, that life is over very quickly. It will also be over if you cut off the food, but it'll take a much longer time. And so now we see that the essence of the the Vedic sacrificial dynamic is also the essence of what it means to be human. So the human being is connected with the sacrifice in a deep and profound way, and this will be the case as we go through the history that we're going to be outlining in the initial episodes and seasons. So this triad of fluid, fire, and air is taken on many forms depending on its field of application. Let me give you an idea about what some of those forms are. Moon, sun, and wind. Though the moon would be the correlate of soma, the sun would be the correlate of the fire, and the wind would be the correlate of the air. In the context of tantra and alchemy, you have two triads that are really important. One is reproductive tissue or semen, blood, and breath. In this case, the reproductive tissue is an analogy or a homologue of soma. The blood is uh, a homologue of fire, and breath, of course, now is the homologue for wind. Also in alchemy, you have mercury, sulfur, and air, and those basically move through the same values. And so we're going to keep this in mind as we move forward, because we're going to see it again in various ways. Now, if you were going to ask the question, how exactly does the sacrifice work? We have to talk about the relationship between the the invisible and the visible. So the invisible would be the divine realm, and the visible would be the human realm, and the sacrifice would mediate between the two. So the invisible governs the visible. It The visible emanates from the invisible. So our world comes from that divine world and is distinguished and brought down and incarnated in a certain way. The visible provides emergence or nourishment for the invisible. And so that's another way of saying that the visible is absorbed into the invisible. So the divine realm governs the human realm and the human realm feeds and is absorbed into the divine realm. All action, all thought, all gesture has a potential to feed the divine realm and facilitate the human absorption back into that higher level. But it's important to understand that all these things, action, feeling, thought, spoken word, can only be reabsorbed into the divine if that stuff takes place in the sacrificial context. David Gordon White gives us another image to help us understand this. Quote, A pot broken in this world, that is, in the sacrificial context, becomes a whole pot in the world of the gods. And so, this pot if broken in the sacrificial context, will be reconstituted in the divine realm. And that's a way of seeing that it will be born again and born again at a higher level. And this is what the Vedic people were hoping for 
when they engaged in the sacrifices. They were taking positive action on their own behalf, hoping that they could accrue a store of good karma so that their birth would be better in the next life. So if we want to really dig in to see how the, the sacrifice works, things that dissolve in this reality, this mundane reality, are reabsorbed and reconstituted, i.e. born again at a higher level, if that dissolution takes place in the sacrificial context. If it's not, all action, all gesture, all thought, all spoken word outside of the sacrificial context doesn't have any meaning. That's actually pretty heavy to think about. I remember the first time that I read that those humans who do not partake in the sacrifice are actually considered to not exist. So they're they're not real. They're not what they're supposed to be because everything they do is outside of this knowledge that the sacrifice produces. So it's a pretty devastating vision of ignorance and and also a tremendous feeling of weight and responsibility to know that I can be reconstituted. I can take positive action on my own behalf, but it's going to have to be in a very interesting scenario, very careful, surgically precise scenario. It's going to have to be composed, fueled by, in other words, rapture and truth. So we wanted to leave you a story, leave you with a story about this sacrificial context and the knowledge that it brings. Well, this is a a very interesting story that is about a young boy who has to learn a very difficult lesson. So it's the story of Burgu, who is the son of Varuna, one of the supreme gods. So here we go. Consumed by the arrogance of knowledge, the young son of the supreme god Varuna was sent off by his father into the world to see what knowledge alone could not reveal, to find out how the world itself is made. Without this, all knowledge is pointless. In the east, Burgu came across men who were slaughtering other men. Burgu asked, why? They answered, because these men did the same to us in the other world. He saw the same strange scene in the south. In the west, there were men eating other men and sitting about calmly. In the north as well, amid piercing cries, there were men eating other men. When he returned to his father, Burgu seemed speechless. He was wide-eyed. Varuna looked at him with satisfaction, thinking, He has seen. The moment had come to explain what his son had seen. He said, The men in the east are trees. Those in the south are flocks of animals. Those in the west are wild plants. Last, those in the north who cried out while they ate other men were the waters. What exactly had Burgu seen? The world is made up of two brothers, Agni and Soma. Brought up as two Asuras, or demons, in Virta's belly, they abandoned him to follow the call of another brother, Indra, and to pass over to the side of the Devas, or the Divine Ones. Agni became the devourer and Soma the food. 
Down here, there is nothing else than devourer and devoured. And so the Vedic imaginary really comes alive here. The most basic thing to say is that all action and all existence proceeds from this act of eating, this fundamental act of consuming something, making it disappear, integrating it somehow at a higher level, and becoming. And so all the things in this world are traced to this fundamental act that it's, it's not too much to say that this is a violent act. And this is a strong statement to be told that to exist means that a certain form of violence is going to be engaged in if indeed you want to continue or life wants to continue. And I suppose there's no way out of that either, because if you don't want to continue or you don't want to engage in this, then you yourself will be erased. And that's an act of violence against yourself. And so sacrifice is needed to make sense of all this. It's interesting that the young boy sees the people in the north and the south and the west sort of as people, sort of like him. They're called men in each place. And then when his father explains, after he has seen all that, wide-eyed, and he has become awakened, in a sense, to the reality of where he lives, he sees that all the things of the world are included in this initial act, this, this eating that wants to continue. Some of them are trees. Some of them are flocks of animals. Some of them are wild plants. And some of them are even the waters. All of these things are eating engaged in this sacrificial action. And all that boils down to two things, Agni and Soma. Because there's a fire, it's going to have to be fed. So it will have to eat food. And the preferred food here is the one that produces truth and ecstasy. So we position the Veda historically between 1700 and 1500 BCE. We focused a little bit on the Rig Veda and noted that it is the original material of the Revelation out of which the other three Vedas are taken. So the Rig is rearranged a little bit, some things are added to it, and that forms the Yajur Veda, and that forms the Sama Veda, and eventually the Atarva Veda, the Veda concerning practical everyday living and healing emerges. We saw that Soma is the centerpiece of the sacrificial ritual and the macro-microcosmic relationship is mediated by sacrifice. You have to have Soma for the sacrifice. You have to have a fire for the sacrifice. And the fire has to breathe. If things are offered in the context of sacrifice, their dissolution here in the lower world is reintegrated in the upper world. But if things are offered outside of sacrifice, or offering is the wrong word, if they're not offered, if they just happen in a sense, then those things that are dissolved here go the way of entropy. If we borrow a modern metaphor to talk about what happens, that means they just come apart and they stay apart and they become dispersed evenly throughout all of space and time. But if offered in the context of the sacrifice, they stay constituted as the thing that they are, the individual thing they are, but now at a higher level. 
we saw that all acts follow from eating. And nourishment is a form of violence that everyone takes part in simply through their existence. Now, this stuff is, under, is important because I'm going to say a few things without going too deeply into it and let you come to all of the podcasts to see the details. Well, modern yoga itself is a, an iteration of the Vedic sacrifice. Modern yoga is seeking the kind of understanding that the Vedic people were seeking. Modern yoga is involved with samadhi, ideas that are very similar to rapture and ecstasy. Modern yoga also is involved with satya and ideas of truth and ideas of clarity and discrimination. And so we really see the same thing happening here. I'd say that modern yoga is an evolved form of this Vedic sacrifice that has been internalized and refined in some sense. It's still a ritual of tending fire that we call tapas now, we have to feed that fire of food. Now we feed it our own ignorance. We feed it what the Yoga Sutra calls klesha, or our afflictions. And this process is guided by pranayama, most essentially. So the breath is the thing that still makes the fire alive so that it can continue to eat and grow. So I hope this has been interesting for everyone. Please stay with us. Let us know what you think. God bless all of you, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Yoga in Action's The Lost Ways of Knowing. To engage more, visit Circle Yoga Shala, a school for yoga, creative movement, and self-inquiry in Arkansas's Ozark Mountains at circleyogashala.com. Offerings range from teacher training, an internationally accredited yoga therapy program, to a quarterly publication, a comprehensive and integrated body of literature.